Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I'm Robbie from Cowboy Ventures and joined as always by Tim Chen from Essence VC. And today we are super excited to have an exciting guest on. It's very timely. We have Dan Jeffries, who's Managing Director of the AI Infra Alliance and was previous Chief Intelligence Officer of Open Source Foundational Model Company Stability AI. And we're very, very excited to have him here. So welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So there's been a ton of talk about stability AI, foundational models. Why don't we start by talking about what your role was there and just kind of like your background and experience in the space? So my role was really thinking about how to build the business from the structure of foundation models, which I think a lot of companies are kind of struggling to try to come to terms with at this point. Um, I'm not sure that any have actually hit upon an effective business model for foundation models yet. It's a very expensive business, very hard to sort of make a profit in that thing. And kind of my history of this was, you know, my interest in artificial intelligence goes back to college. So I'm going to date myself here in the 90s. And, you know, I had a ton of like the original papers, the Perceptron paper and like, you know, all these old Lisp and Prolog books. And I was just fascinated by it. I I barely understood the math. I still barely understand the math. (laughs) But I found it all fascinating. And I thought, you know, there's magic in here. And it didn't quite, I don't know how to unlock it just yet. And then I spent a lot of time in IT. I had a, uh, you know, was there in the dot-com boom. And then I ended up being, uh, as an IT consultant for a number of years, I was at Red Hat for a decade. And around 2016, I started something inside of Red Hat to say, like, We've got to get on the AI train. We've got to get on the infrastructure train. We're like the most important infrastructure company in the world for open source. Let's do this. And I socialized it up. We had working groups, all that stuff to the CTO. They just didn't quite get it. And that's understandable because very few people got it at the time. So I left. I ended up at Packaderm for a few years. Uh, then I started the yeah, Infrastructure Alliance and then I was into stability. So kind of a, a long and winding journey in tech and interest. And it kind of all sort of wove together at that point. Yeah, and I, I actually forgot you were actually a packager. You know, that was a super fascinating company. And just in terms of like, not just MOOPs, one of the earliest MOOPs company, but, you know, really built more of like a managed end-to-end stack, right? Really helping you to do a lot of different things. And it seems like your career is basically just keep moving up the stack, right? <laughs> right as <laughs> Pachyderm, now stability. You know, I always feel fascinated because I come from, not similar, but somewhat level of that view. Like I never really looked at all kinds of interesting foundation models and how it applies to everything. When you were sort of like looking into stability, probably when the first time from that system lens, what was any surprises or any things that you, you come from that world like oh wow this is there's so much we have to do here or this actually there's there's a lot of limitations i just was just curious when you are from a system thinker going into sort of like this generative ai especially coming out with all kinds of like applications do you see opportunities that you feel like there's a lot more we have to focus on on the lower end or just like, oh, you know, this this whole explosion of foundation models coming from the stability side. I guess we're curious, what are the things you really thought was, was going to be things you have to focus on, maybe as a company or as a person going to this space? And how you thought about what are the things that really push your effort and focus on? So, you know, whenever I look at kind of the future and try to kind of predict like where things are going, what I've definitely learned is it's a fool's game to try to pick the exact timing. It's sort of the same thing in investment, right? You, you kind of go, well, the next 
two or three years, this is definitely going to happen or it's going to take 10 years. That's always, you can kind of guess around that, but you're usually wrong. What you can do is do kind of a Monte Carlo analysis of the future. And you can say like, these are the strong branches of ingredients. And if they come together in this way, here's the three or four ways that this is likely to go. Here's the missing ingredients. So you can get a sense of where the stuff is going. You just don't quite know when it's going to come together. And I think then sometimes when something comes together, there's an aha moment. I think we saw it with, with chat GPT. And then all of a sudden there's all these little ingredients that have existed that you're like, what, you know, what does that exist for? What are we going to do with that? And there's not a great fit, but then all of a sudden people are finding use cases for it. You're seeing that with things like Biden code and vector databases. If you ask me like why anyone needs a vector database, you know, three or four years ago, I was going, you don't, I don't really know why you're going to need that. And then all of a sudden now it's kind of becoming the potential long-term memory for LLMs. And that's what happens when you have this kind of one moment where there's all these little building blocks and then it comes together in this unique way. And then everyone goes, wait a minute, if we had this piece in this piece. But when I was looking at stability, it was a moment where like MLOps was starting to face some headwinds when I was at Panicoderm and, and there was like a lot of MLOps companies, you know, we're not going to get the next funding round, right? There was just this whole kind of dour mood that had kind of fallen over MLOps land, which I frankly think was a little unfair. I think that they still needed a little more time to really get the business going. But there was also a bit of a mistake in the way they thought the business would go, and that they thought every company in the world is going to have hundreds or thousands of data scientists and be doing advanced ML. I think that's never going to be the case. We're going to be much higher up the stack. So I do think that was a mistake, but I also think they got a little rug pulled in the world. So when I was looking at stability, I was behind the scenes watching the model be trained, you know, talking with the, the folks who were working on it, talking with the mod, talking with everyone else. And I was quite frankly watching the early versions of the model. And I was like, this is terrible. Like it's total crap. It produces a Cronenberg every time. But then like a new checkpoint would come out, right? And another checkpoint, I'm like, okay, just hammer away at it. And, and I was fascinated by it. It felt like magic. And then at one point in time, all of a sudden, we were like, Iman and I were joking, we were calling that the Gal Gadot moment where like all of a sudden it was generating these like awesome Gal Gadots, right? And I was like, Gal Gadot is, a, you know, you know, I don't know, and, and, and as an elf, Gal Gadot, like, you know, in a, a 70s noir film, you know? And it was producing all these really cool images, not perfect, but I was like, okay, you know, this model can compete and this is going to be a shock to the world when it's open sourced. And it could really change the game. It did change the game in a lot of different ways, some ways that were unexpected, some ways that were very much expected. And for me, that was really the fascinating moment where I said, okay, it's time to pivot again, because it's one of these moments where all the forces have been out there, all the ingredients have been out there, but now all of a sudden it's coming together. That was really the moment for me. Awesome. And I think there are so many things that we can dig into when it comes to stability, but maybe just to like to take a step back. So... Where did the idea for stability, A, being open source and open sourcing their models and for the first model to come out? Like what, where did kind of the, like there's been a lot going on in the space the last year, but like even longer than that. Like, can you give us a bit of context on the origin story for Stability AI and where like stable diffusion came from and just kind of the umbrella of different models that kind of sit under Stability AI? Stable Diffusion came out of um, University of Munich, one of their sort of AI labs there and the, and the researchers who were working on it at the time, right? And I think the original founders essentially looked at this space and said, like, all these models are going to be closed, right? 
And there's a real need for open. And there's also going to be a real need for GPUs. Like as these models kind of catch on, there's going to be a shortage. And we're actually starting to see that shortage crop up now as these models kind of kick off. And so the idea was to fund, you know, a supercomputer essentially, and then use these kind of decentralized collectives of groups that were forming, right, out there on discords and sharing ideas and using this kind of open source approach and then kind of fully train the model and 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 do these kinds of things in, in this sort of open source way. And I think the ethos had always been open source from the very beginning. In other words, there was very little concept that this should be a proprietary kind of closed model. And there was this feeling that if artificial intelligence is completely closed, that's bad for society. Now, I think in some ways we've seen a huge kind of like dust up about this. And we, we should definitely dig into this a bit more. We've seen a huge dust up where you've seen kind of open AI go straight up. We were wrong. We don't want to be there. And I just today saw a tweet stream from someone who I, I respect, but I was not happy about this opinion where they were basically like, no, we should absolutely should not have these open source model, uh, foundation models. And it's dangerous. It's like having a nuclear weapon and a biological weapon all in one in everyone's hands. I hate that analogy. I think it's a terrible analogy. I think it, it shows a desperate lack of critical thinking. A nuclear weapon is designed to do one thing, destroy things. And it's completely disingenuous to say that an open source model is analogous because it has this broad range of good, neutral, and bad things that you can do with it, like anything. You can take Photoshop and put a celebrity head on a naked body, or you know, you can make your advertisement for your, you know, for your website, right? But nobody, we've come to this weird point in society where people are like, we've got to shut Photoshop down unless you can prove that like it's never gonna be used to put a celebrity head on a body, you know, or you can't sell the kitchen knife. Unless you can guarantee no one ever gets stabbed with it. When it's like, look, 99% of the people are going to cut vegetables. So I hate this analogy of like weapons. And there's this back and forth. So the overall feeling inside stability and my personal feeling and the feeling of many in open source is broadly beneficial systems. That there'll be broadly beneficial systems that when they're open, some of the best innovation comes out of there, right? I mean, if you look at Linux, I think it's the most impactful software in the history of mankind. It runs everything from supercomputers to your edge router to all of the clouds. Imagine if Microsoft had managed to kill Linux back in the day when they were calling it communism and cancer. They would have shot their entire business model in the foot, right? Because their entire you know data center runs on top of it, their supercomputing clusters, right? So, but it, Linux is also used to write malware and to write attack systems, right? Et cetera. So bad things are going to be done. I don't like how we've moved forward in the society. And I think many of the folks inside stability and, and other folks with an open source mentality, it says there's a broader benefit to these things being open and that closed is usually a shell game to say, hey, we're the only ones smart enough to control this thing. So you should give us all the power. We're the only trusted source. And the problem with that is that when you become the only trusted source, you can't remove that from the system, right? You know, it's like an organization, trust is moving. It's a moving concept. If you replace all the people inside that organization that was formerly trusted with untrustworthy people, and they're still the middleman in this thing, that's a terrible thing. We saw that with the fraud detection firm that lost, you know, half the data in the United States. Guess what? They're still a part of the trusted ecosystem for how you manage your credit report because they can't be removed 
from the chain despite the, that failure. So I, I don't like that mentality. I like the ability to trust. And I think for many of the people, it's really felt the same. And that's that was kind of the ecosystem behind it. I think there's so much nuance about this space that we could really, really dive into. But, you know, I think talking about the stability stories is truly interesting because, like you mentioned, it's it's an open source approach of taking sort of a large it's actually not just one person or even one lab. It sounds like there's actually a collaboration of a community using a data sets, creating a, a model, and able to actually use infrastructure that's not small at all. I, I saw the first version when stability was announced with 4,000 nodes of A100 clusters, right? There's, there's certain amounts of effort and coordination that needs to come into it. And I think as a community, that's actually very hard to do to even like put it forward into a sort of community of a body. I'm just curious how stability, once the company has started, how did the company really work together still with the community of researchers? And what is sort of the mode of sort of operations? Do you work with a set of researchers or is there particular ways that you're funding other labs and, and clusters and to, to do certain type of goals or is is mostly open-ended? I'm just curious, like, what is the way the company and a community sort of works together? I mean, as you know, I, you know, I've, I've left because we have a bit of a divergence of vision on how that sort of works over time, right? So I just wanted to be clear about that. But I would say it's evolved over time. I think the initial idea was very much that it was going to be like there were multiple collectives that were all kind of independent and had their own sort of uh, understanding of things. I think that still some of the case but I think some of the, those communities have kind of drifted out from the fold. Some have gotten closer to the fold. A number of folks have been hired from the communities and really ended up building a, a lot of its own machine learning team by the time that, that I had left, its own sort of research team. Still very much with, uh, you know, the open source philosophy. You know, they released, uh, you know, their stable chat and, and things like that, you know, after I'd gone. But uh, they were already training it when, you know, when I was still there. And... So I think the answer to that is that it's evolving. I think maybe naively, if, if I'm being honest, in the beginning we thought like we could, you know, run it almost in the punk rock, you know, open source collective kind of way. And there's a sense that, you know, believing in power to the people or whatever. But, you know, each one of these groups ends up having its own dynamic, right? Its own structures, its own power structures, its own capabilities and, and its own weaknesses, right? And so I think eventually it was natural that you'd see an evolution where some of the communities grew sort of closer and some of them wanted to go in their own direction, you know, maybe, you know, be able to have the ability to utilize multiple clusters. I think you're going to see kind of a number of sort of, maybe not decentralized, but sort of publicly funded clusters, or I think you're already even seeing that with things like Together XYZ, right? Like they had sort of thought, well, we're going to do these decentralized clusters, but really when you look at the, the stuff that they're training right now with the Red Pajamas data set, they're doing a partnership with the, I don't know if they're actually running on the Frontier supercomputing cluster, but they're, you know, they're doing a partnership with Stanford and, and Frontier and things like that. So they're running it in a centralized way. I think more and more things like this are going to happen. And I think there are going to be these communities that kind of pop up and build an affiliation sort of for a period of time. And it's going to be based on how much those clusters are, are fine with it, right? And what the backlash is going to be and what the fear level in society is going to be about open models because well like i said earlier some folks feel like no like the fact that anyone could do anything bad with this it's like we can't allow this to happen and other folks say look you know there's a range of capabilities of these things and it's very important i think 
again, when I come back to it, it's important for these kind of different communities to exist because they provide a different way of thinking about things. And they're able to do a lot of innovations that I think get missed, you know, behind the scenes, right? We saw this with, for instance, adapters that were created, like the LoRa adapter was created for an LLM and was adopted by the stable diffusion community. And when I refer to the stable diffusion community, I mean the, the general users just out there doing it. So like everyone on Reddit and all that, that's sort of posting on there and everyone in a sort of amorphous kind of cluster, not even the definitive research clusters that were kind of around stability. And you have people building these hand curated data sets and refining the model. And some of those models are as good as, you know, mid journey for, for realism or something like that. The Laura was adapted by the community. And to the point that the person who wrote the paper was on the Reddit recently saying, Hey, I didn't even think of this. What can I do to make the next version that's more useful? And then the community was doing things like merging five or six or 10 or 20 models together. And, you know, a lot of data scientists thought this was going to work. And so I think all this work ends up trickling back up, you know, these ability to kind of like rapidly create LoRa's or rapidly create different kinds of adapters for things are going to be incredibly important for fixing these models over time. I think you're seeing the merging of models now. I mean, what was Palm E except them taking a transformer and just jamming into an LLM and all of a sudden the bot can now find its way around space with no additional not outer space, but just the space that it's working in, right? About. And that kind of approach, I think, comes from that synergy. When regular folks, engineers, people who are just interested in it, passionate about it, we can already see that with people who can craft a data set of something that they're passionate about and, and lovingly label that. This is some brute force level work, right? This is not easy to do, but the ability to do that thing all of a sudden creates these wonderful models. So I think there's a very important synergy that happens with open source. And I think that it's kind of slower, sometimes it's uglier, it's messier or whatever. But over time, that true innovation comes out because you just have more minds working on it. And it doesn't matter if you had all the money in the world, if you had all of Oracle and Microsoft and everyone else's money back in the day, you could not have made the Linux code. You would not have been able to do it. And I think the same thing is going to happen here where we're going to have these innovations that happen because of open source. They're going to trickle back to these closed source models as well. I think this is a really interesting and important debate because like OpenAI stating that the reason that they don't want to open source their source code is because of potential malicious use cases. I mean, to your point, there's going to be hopefully a lot more good that comes out of these than bad. And open sourcing, it just gives this kind of longevity to these models and just like the scale at where they can go is much bigger. I guess when you think about this space and right now it just feels like there's so much going on. So it's hard to know like three years from now where we're going to be. Do you think there's going to be a place for some closed source models, some open source, or do you really like see this space tilting towards foundational models, like the big ones three years from now are the ones that are most commonly used being open source? I am, quite frankly, a little bit concerned that the trend right now is toward closed, if I'm being honest, right? Now, I like to wear all of my biases, like on my sleeves, everybody knows where I stand, right? But I think right now, when you see the GPT-4 paper, where they were basically like, we're not going to tell you anything about this now, nothing, not the parameter count, not how it was trained, not its architecture, absolutely nothing, it's a competitive space. Which is unfortunate because half of the, you know, the architecture came from things that they learned through openness, right, in the research. And now you see kind of leaks from Google saying like, well, we should probably not publish any papers. I think it's a terrible trend. It's also understandable because, you know, one of the things I think that was an unfortunate 
side effect of, I think, stable diffusion and things like that is this desire to be radically open. You know, people started zeroing in on the data set, I think because of fear, right? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more that I got a good article coming out about this now, but I think people never really argue about the thing that they're talking about when they have these economic battles over a new technology. And, and artificial intelligence is not the first technology, by the way, that has faced sort of a backlash, right? There's a great book, Innovation and Its Enemies, about the history of technologies and coming out. Coffee faced a backlash for like 200 years. And we don't tend to think of that as a technology, but it is. It's a process of getting these beans, machines and refining it. And it was considered to be like the coffee houses were like the internet of the old world. That's where people gathered for ideas. This was very threatening to kings and queens. It was very threatening to the state powers. You know, so they crunched down on this. It was threatening to other businesses. So the wine and beer businesses saw it as a threat because most people didn't drink water because you you know you got a disease from water. They couldn't purify it. But most people drank low levels of alcohol all day, very much watered down. It's not like they were hammered all day, although who knows. But it was like that was the safe thing to drink. So that there was a huge economic lobby that kind of pushed against coffee, right? But now if you told somebody coffee used to be a battleground, they'd look at you like you had two heads, right? What are you even talking about, right? So with artificial intelligence, there's this weird kind of fear level that comes from you know years of science fiction that was written, by the way, when nothing existed. So it's really just a metal buddy or a metal Frankenstein monster. Like, it's very much a trope. But that scared people. And then you have these kind of research institutes, which I use in quotes, you know, which are basically philosophy institutes, right? Like, basically saying, well, you know, we figured out all the existential risks, like orthogonal theory. We figured out that it might not be nice to us. I'm like, I don't know how long it took you to think of that theory, but okay, of course, right? Well, what it could also be nice. And you know, people pull these kind of numbers out of their their ass, like, well, it's 10% or it's 100% possibility. You know, like, you have no idea and no basis to make that. So there's this weird sort of level of fear. And then the other level of fear that I think is pushing back on this stuff was the idea of we're going to lose our jobs, right? And none of the companies, I think, did a very good job getting out there and saying, we're building centaurs, we're building tools to help people, to augment people's workflow, et cetera. And this story of like the end of all jobs really has caught on. You could Google it a hundred times. The robots are taking all my jobs. It feels like ChatGPT has written all these articles, right? And so I think that you have the artist community and others kind of start looking deep at the data sets. And a lot of the initial kind of backlash was like, they couldn't find an argument that really stuck. They're like, no, well, like it's not real art, which kind of worked in the artistic community, but outside didn't resonate. People were using Lenza and they're like, I love it. It's great. I push a button and I get a cool avatar. I don't care. And they finally like zeroed in on the magic word of consent. Okay. And that's a very magical word in the modern world for many good reasons. The word consent is popular in the modern world, even though it's been with us for so long, as a fix for historical horrors right? that plagued mankind. We don't even have to worry about the robots. Humans have been assholes for all of our history of two million years. You know, Hitler and, and Stalin didn't need social media, right, to, to rally everyone to do horrible things, right? So, I, but consent is kind of this idea that's taken on a magical significance. I think that became the rallying word around this thing. I didn't give you the right to train on my data. And it's consent is one of those words that when you use it, it's almost like a magical shutdown for anyone on the other side. Like, how dare you don't agree with consent? You know, like, how dare you you say that to me? Are you some kind of hideous, like, human being or whatever? So it's one of these things that, like, worked as a rallying point. But I don't really think it's about that. I think it is about trying to shut down artificial intelligence or the idea to 
you know, stop this progress or slow it. But it's really about that job. It's really about the fear that I'm going to be replaced. I don't think people are going to be replaced. I think this was a ridiculous concept. I think we've always destroyed all the jobs hundreds of times in history. You didn't hand leather today to make your clothes or churn butter or hunt the water buffalo for your food, right? You know, like when I flip the switch, the electric light comes on. Nobody is crying for the fact that we don't hunt sperm whales to dig the white gunk out of their head anymore. And I'm sorry that those folks don't exist anymore, but that didn't happen overnight. It was a slow thing. We've always created new and more varied jobs. And I think the same thing happens here. And so I think what I'm worried about is that we had to push towards this consent. I think we have people like not very intelligently pushing towards like a music industry kind of copyright for everything, which would be an absolute disaster that would blow back on every artist, myself included as a writer. And I don't want to see that. If you see all the cases with Ed Sheeran and everyone else from this stupid blurred lines case where they're like, well, it kind of felt like the you know Marvin Gaye song of the past. That is not what copyright was for, right? It was for exact ripoff. We'd have this floodgates open in the world of like, I've copyrighted anime style. So I think that's horrible. But I think all that fear, the lawsuits, this push, this competitiveness that's happening to kind of own the space, unfortunately, I think it's pushing towards more clothes. People being, you know, they're hiding the training data so that they're not going to have to go fight an angry mob you know, on Twitter, you know, they're hiding even the parameters of the architecture so that people can't get a leg up on how to recreate this in the open source community. I think this is tremendously damaging. And I think in the short term, there's a strong possibility we head towards like a Wintel dynasty kind of pair off in AI. I think the long-term open tends to win, but there's all these weird hidden fears, existential risk, the automation of all jobs, et cetera, that's driving, I think, this kind of status game of who can up and say the most like insane thing about what's coming next? Already, you know, I saw someone the other day, 250,000 jobs destroyed by chat TV. I'm like, you're just straight making up a statistic. You straight made that statistic up. You have no basis for it. There's no possibility that you have that information. You have none. And just because the CEO comes out and says, oh, my business went down in flames because of ChatGPT. Maybe their business went down in flames because they mismanaged their business. And that's just a convenient excuse. So there's this weird kind of climate that's happening right now. And I think it's unfortunate because I feel like so much of the innovation came from that open sharing in the early days. But people are going to really want to dominate this incredible technology for a period of time. I think it's sad, but I do think that there's a good strong possibility we go in that direction. There are some alternatives. There are a lot of, like you have Databricks making a really cool pivot, you have Together XYZ ability, you have a number of other companies, Mosaic, looks like they were training up a big model. I don't know whether they released it fully open source, but it's like, there's people pushing in that direction. And I hope that I am proved wrong with this and that there is like, you know, this big counter movement that gets real traction, but it, it's not going in a direction that I, that I really love in the short term. Yeah, I think for folks that are from the outside, it's truly exciting and also confusing all the time, right? You're always in this, this both states. Because I think right now we're seeing where once Llama is open source, once the whole industry has like, okay, we can now do our consumer hardware GPU and we can train yeah. our own LMs. There is, I think we're seeing so many people with the ability to actually create a really sizable, functional, powerful LLM, you know, with mm-hmm. their laptops. And this is, I think it's in the right direction for sure. I'm just curious because I think stability for longest time was also just doing images, audios, right? The sort of generative media and a stable LM came out. 
it was a big news, right? It was a huge, more and more parameters. If you think of every, every single release, it was six to seven billion, now 13 billion. It feels like there's like a race happening, even in an open source world of how big, how much we can also able to release and to show the sort of progress, right? I'm curious what is really the sort of like the goal to continue to sort of push maybe a way to show the world that hey, we have like a, we have a better states now and we're looking for collaboration or how do you think this sort of the change now with Llama and everybody's releasing their own chat GPT open sourcing, where do you see this going? Do we see more and more parameters for each company trying to push for a more like powerful, you know, text model here? Or do we think, okay, we're going to maybe converging to a point where, okay, until the new architecture comes out or something new, powerful thing that we have to go, you know, copy, you know, let's let's try to push for efficiency and cost because that seems to be the, we're trying to get to parity, <laughs> just more cheaper and easier. And it seems to be the open source focus has been sort of mostly around that, if I'm not mistaken. I'm just curious, like, what are other axes when different companies are pushing for their own big text models. Do you see them trying to push for some other state-of-the-art or pushing a state-of-the-art in different ways that hasn't really been explored? Or everybody will just try to be cheaper and faster with the capabilities of what the closed source models are doing at a cat race here? Look, there is an arms race regardless, uh, whether it's open or closed or both, right? And I think the desire is to have in the open source communities like large models that are extremely capable, right? And... I do think sometimes there's some cherry picking where everybody kind of wants to be, well, it can chat just like ChatGPT, and so it's as good as ChatGPT, and that really is not an effective, we need much better kind of comparison for this thing, but not an effective, just because I can instruct tune it doesn't mean it has emerging capabilities, right? Despite what the paper said that emerging capabilities may be a mirage, it's like, yeah, well, Except those capabilities don't generally exist like in the smaller models. So that doesn't seem like a mirage to me. It does mean like we may have measured it poorly at times and we could do that better. But it's certainly not a mirage because chains of reasoning and and these sort of advanced coding things, you know, don't exist. Even I had a a fellow tell me the other day, Star Coder came out, right? And it was like, oh, you know, it really kicked out with code, right? It can can generate this code. Except then you go, well, this code, is there any insecurities in this code? Can you fix it? It's like, well, here's your code. Thanks so much, right? And it's like, Okay, well, so yeah, I can do this one thing really well, but it doesn't have quite that same range of breath that I think has blown everyone away with something like GPT-4, right? Like the fact we even have Hinton kind of going, whoa, this kind of like got here faster than I thought, right? You know, and so I think there's a range to kind of push these models to be stronger. What I'm really hoping is that open source folks are going to take a page from history and start looking at successful companies like Red Hat and start looking at MongoDB and, you know, Confluent, right? All, you know, these kind of successful companies, Red Hat and post Red Hat, and understand that it is not just about training a giant model that's kind of as capable as everything else. It is about supporting that model over the long term and running that model and abstracting away the complexity. I think there is a mistaken understanding right now that everyone is saying that, well, like, everyone's going to just run this model in their own data center. That's nonsense. That, you know, like, certainly we're going to have small capable models that are incredibly useful to run on premise, right? And people will want that. At the same time, I mostly just want a SaaS service to run a lot of these things. And I want to be able to choose from 20 different SaaS services that are running an open source version that, like, 
have a different privacy policy or, or more important, are only running in a specific data center or only run on-premise, but it's managed, right? And then I think that the open source communities are really going to have to, not the communities, but the companies behind them, are going to have to emulate that sort of Red Hat model. In other words, they're going to have to develop what I generally call bug fixes or skill upgrades, right? Skill packs, right? So a bug fix, meaning like a hallucination or any like logical error or just crap answer, right? That, that makes no sense, right? Like if your LLM, your open source LLM or any LLM starts, you know, advising kids to commit suicide, who's fixing that, right? That is a bug. Are you fixing that in the model with fine tuning with an adapter? Are you layering on adapters? How many adapters can we add to things? Who knows? Is it a thousand? Is it ten thousand? Is it five? We don't really know, right? So there's going to have to be a support model for these things that can rapidly fix errors as they're happening and also add capability, right? Like a skill upgrade is something like medical knowledge or legal knowledge. It's not just going to be oh great, every company is going to want to train up on their private data set, right? This is kind of the same mistake I think that the MLOps communities were sort of making before, where like everyone's going to have a dedicated data science team. I think the answer is they're not, right? But if you can give me point and click ability to like go look at a bunch of data and it can rapidly like curate it and it can rapidly pick out examples for me, it can rapidly auto-label it and surface two or 3% of them. And I go, yeah, that sounds great. And train it up and then give me some answers. Awesome. Or I can, even better, point it as a knowledge repository and write some kind of text around the API and it knows what to do. Great. Right. But we're going to need in the open source community and the ability to sort of support these models in production. And it's not just going to be great. Here's the open source model. I dropped it in the ocean. Now I threw it into my data center. It's all good because it's not all good. These models are super flawed. They're incredible, but they're super flawed. And when it starts doing crazy stuff, you're going to want to throw it to choke. So any open source company that's thinking that the end game is training the models, you know, you are at stage one of like you moved your first pawn on the board, right? Like wake up and, and build a business around this thing to support it just like the businesses of the past where you have realm, you know, follow the sun service and you have an actual plan in the infrastructure in place to fix bugs when people are like, hey, it started spitting out PII or it started like, you know, harassing our employees and gaslighting them in this instance. How do I fix that, right? So I think people need to build those kind of tools I think that needs to trickle up too to the closed source teams. In other words, I don't think that we can fix errors fast enough. If you look at the folks who are out there doing prompt injections and things like that, you know, some of the interviews with these folks, they're saying like OpenAI and everyone else is not fixing these things fast enough. They're not because the tools are not fast enough. I have to go curate a data set. I'm going to need dedicated violet teams, right? If I have the LLM that tells someone to commit suicide, I need to be able to go in an automated fashion Tell me why it's a bad idea to commit suicide. Okay, now take that answer and pair it with the first question. Now generate me 100 versions of that answer and 100 versions of that question. Great, surface 2% of them to me. Check, check, check. Nope, this is good, this is good, this is bad. Great, generate 30 more for the ones you screwed up. Now fine tune yourself and then give me your output. You see what I mean? It's going to have to be an order of magnitude faster because you know you can do anything with these machines. And so we're going to need a whole series of like next level MLOps next level support and infrastructure to be able to fix these things. It's going to have to be faster even than we were fixing code traditionally because you're going to have an order of magnitude level speed up as people use AI to attack AI, right? So these are the kinds of things that I think have to happen in the open source community, but they're going to have to trickle into the, the closed source community too. If you're building a company that's an open source, you really have to think about the business model. And that business model is support and scale. If for Red Hat, it was support 
every company since then has been also extracting away the complexity. You know, MongoDB is easy to set up, but go try to run that in production for like, you know, 100 million user app. You're going to be calling up Mongo to say, please take away the pain and like do the replications and the backup. And I just want to call the API. Open source companies should be thinking along those lines as well. And that is how they're going to build an effective business. If they don't, they're going to burn through two, three, four hundred million dollars and get acquired to be out of business by a closed source company. And that's going to be sad. And while we're talking about business models in this space, because one of the things I know I've been struggling with and other investors have been struggling with is you have these super powerful foundational models and a lot of them are getting widely adopted by consumers for different use cases, but not necessarily things that are like enterprise ready. And so like, what do you think the state of things are right now? Because you have like some applications like Copilot or some around marketing with Jasper AI, but there don't seem to be just these like very obvious use cases yet. And maybe it's a tooling problem or maybe it is the fact that a lot of these models aren't open source. So enterprises are like, I don't know how I can deploy something with this in production for my users. But like, what's the true state of things as you see it? And when do you think like they're just going to be foundational AI enabled applications across a bunch of different functions within a company? So I think that there are uh, two ways to solve a problem. And sometimes when I say this, people, they go, well, duh, damn, that's obvious, but it's not. So that is, it's in the model or outside the model, okay? And go, oh, of course. No, not of course, right? In the model is a series of data science problems and, and machine learning and engineering problems, rapid fine-tuning, curating of the data, auto-labeling human preferences. All of these are bottlenecks that have to be set up in order to be able to rapidly fine-tune a model. How many LoRa's, you know, how many adapters can I add to a model in order to fix it? Again, is it five? Is it 500? Is it 5,000? Is it 50,000? Do they scale the memory or do any more memory efficient ones? Do I have to average them all together? How effective is that? The answer to this, nobody knows, okay? People are going to have to know the answer to that question, right? So again, those things are going to have to be fixed. Outside the model, I think we have a lot more characteristics to pull from from history. I think this is where enterprises are going to go. I think very few people are looking at this space. I think that's criminal. In other words, we have these heuristics of middleware. We have these heuristics. We have these concepts of things like you can take from the antivirus industry. You've got signatures. You've got heuristics. You have other neural nets, right? You can look at that with something like prompt injections, right? We could be looking at it for the same way we look at antivirus, right? There's going to be all kinds of auditing and tracing. There's going to be interfaces that need to limit the scope of what people can do and hence how they can screw it up. Right, it, the idea that we're just going to drop a prompt in and let anybody do whatever they want in an enterprise space is probably not wise, right? And we're going to need all these essentially wrappers and this tooling to make it a little more deterministic, right? Because it's a probabilistic system. I think we could take this too far. Some people are like, "Wow, we, I've got to have a hundred percent guarantee." That makes no sense. That's not what the strength of these systems are. The fact that they are probabilistic systems and can make mistakes but can also do things that you would never be able to hand code is super important. Again, take something like self-driving cars outside of the enterprise here for a moment, okay? You know, I say to people, how many deaths is acceptable with self-driving cars before we put these into production, wide scale? And many people would say, I don't know, none, right? But if you take traditional driving cars, humans are terrible freaking drivers, terrible, okay? We kill 1.35 million people every year on the road and 50 million people are injured. So if self-driving cars cut that in half, or they cut it by, to a quarter, that's a million people walking around on the road playing with their kids. So we have to get used to a level of error rate. We haven't gotten to what that error rate is. If you look at things like AutoGPT, et cetera, you have these 
you know, 20, 30% error rate. These are unacceptable levels of error rates. They've got to come down. They're going to come down with fixes in the model. And outside the models, people build guardrails, auditing, different layers of control to augment the thing, more knowledge retrieval, more memory into the thing, right? More APIs that they're able to call. Only look at this repository for answers. Don't make anything up. Or never touch this code repository because it's, you know, it's verboten, right? You know, we're going to need this level of control for the enterprises to feel comfortable with this stuff, to be able to deal with regulatory industries, compliance. That's just going to take time. Everyone, again, everybody is pushing the singularity is here. The singularity is not here. Wake the hell up. Okay. It's going to take some time and it's going to take the time for these things to enter the enterprise and you're going to need to build these very traditional kind of software things around it, barring some kind of breakthrough. Okay. I think we get to a simulation of a general intelligence with, you know, external databases, state, knowledge, knowledge retrieval, the ability to call other APIs, et cetera. But that's not true intelligence. It's kind of this, like at the beginning of the movie AI, where they say, you know, what is love? And the robot says, you know, love is dilation of the eyeballs and quickening of the pulse and blushing of the cheeks. And you're like, okay, stop. Right now, at some level, a simulation is really important, but it is not like the actual intelligence. So I think we get to a cool simulation with this combination of traditional hand-coded techniques. The decoder is not dead. Don't believe this nonsense either. <laughs> the programmer is going to become just as important in building in the guardrails of these systems. They might be faster by pair programming, but they're still going to have to do the logic and they're going to have to build these systems. I think once we get to better auditing tracing, the question becomes, what error level becomes useful for enterprise systems? This is variable, okay? You might get it down to 0.1% and 30%. If that 0.1% sends an email that takes a $10 million deal on your half, you might not be so you know, forgiving of that error. But in other cases, there's going to be a lot more play in terms of the error. Right. So I think we're going to have to get much better at like at the interface UI UX experience and the guardrails around these things and the kind of traditional levels of trust and control that are just missing from these systems at this current point in time for it to really hit the enterprise. I think given your experience coming from Pachyderm and now worked at Stability and saw how that company you know, progressed, there's so many foundation model companies now from all over the stack, right? There's more applications, verticals, there's more tools, there's more, even more foundation model companies as well. You know, the anthropic-ish, coherence of the world. But I think we're so early in the innings of learning how to even run a company in this space. Is there anything you've learned or advice you will give to founders, you know, or maybe to start one or already raise the funding, just raise and learning how to even operate into this LLM style of the world. Any key advice or learnings you think will be good for founders to learn? Don't start a foundation model company unless you have like, you know, a hundred billion dollars. That's what Sam is thinking. We it takes to get the AGI. I think he's off by an order of magnitude. I think it's going to take one to ten trillion dollars to get to AGI. But you know, the thing is the foundation model company has only one of two exits. One is get bought by a larger company <laughs> and lose all your independence. And the other is like you have the Google model where you've got kind of Android, but Android loses you money, but it's the ecosystem with which, you know, the Android exists in that you can sell a bunch of goods and services. So really the foundation model game in the long run is going to be about all the, like the add-on services around it. And it's going to be incredibly compute time and people and data expensive now because everyone's jumping on the, what you trained on my data for free yeah smell the cash money like it's all gonna be charged now right so 
that's going to raise the price of these things too, right? And so foundation models, you know, Anthropic in their pitch deck, I think was saying that they think at some point in time, they're going to build a foundation model in the next two or three years and no one's going to be able to catch up. Like in other words, if you don't build a foundation model in the next couple of years, you won't build it. I don't buy that either. I think there's going to be new innovations that are going to outmode some of the old models. But I do think you could build a very powerful model that gives you, you know, an incredible note. I would say though, if you're a founder and you're looking at the space, you should be looking at all the areas where their problems are not solved, like some of the ones I already talked about on the show today. But the one that I'm always thinking about the most when I think about my own business ideas, when I think about where I like to, uh, you know, invest in the future and like where I kind of advise founders is you want to still go towards a business that does what humans still do best. And that is think creatively, have an expert level of knowledge and the ability to deploy that knowledge in novel ways. Okay. And I'll give you an example. You know, if I train up the best, you know, rocket creation neural net in the world, learns from all the history of rockets and whatever, it will never be able to give me a totally different novel solution to how to put people in the space. It might give me a variation on a rocket, but it's never going to invent something that's totally different than a rocket. Whereas a human can draw from all of the domain experience of their life. And they can say, you know what? I figured out a way to put us on the moon. It's this thing called a rocket. We're going to do this. We're going to design it up. And they can design it and build it and land it on the moon the first time if they do it correctly. They can screw it up along the way, of course, too, right? But it's that level of ingenuity. If you don't have a company that incorporates some level of that ingenuity, let's take an example of the anti-prompt injection company, okay? That is similar, again, to a company like Ethet, very successful, 500 million plus, and some of the larger ones, McAfee, Fantech, et cetera. It still requires intelligent people to look at novel attacks because people are creative. They have neural nets in there. They have signatures. They have heuristics. They have a huge network of install base to look at these things. Somebody generally still has to look at these novel attacks and say, like, what's happening here? What did these creative criminals come up with that I've never seen before? And so there's this whole, like, set of knowledge work. And if you look at, for instance, like encoding, I've, I've been reading like the blogs and talking to some of these super advanced coders. They get some of the best work, for instance, out of ChatGPT, right? And these and these pair protein things, because they're doing all the high level thinking, but now they can get four, you know, five things done, five pull requests, two tools that they never would have been able to convince their boss to do because the boss doesn't understand the tool. It's a pain in the ass. So anywhere that you can build in Something where the machine's doing what it does. It's almost like the Google model in the early days. Humans give meaning and context to something, and machines count crap over and over again really fast, right? That was the Google philosophy, if everybody remembers from the early days. I think the same thing applies here. If you just build a thing that's like, I want to have ChatGPT like build me a website. And I've seen a bunch of these demos where like, bam, you know, every web designer's a business, you know, and I'm like, dude, that is the text box with a fucking ugly button, you know, like that's not a web page, okay? That's nothing, right? Like, but if you are able to go and take all the knowledge of like, okay, I can match up all these templates, right? And and I look at something like Divi, 22 million like installers, single programmer put this together, drag and drop website. That's a beautiful website that makes me a shitty web designer look like I hired a $100 million firm, you know, to build me an awesome website. You have to really incorporate that level of knowledge and that level of domain expertise. And if you're not like making a site, like a neural network or whatever, to build me a site that looks like that, then step off, you know, because that is like, you're just giving me some crap. 
Okay. And don't tell me you're replacing all of web designers tomorrow with that shit with the blinky button and the guy like, you know, doing the under construction shit from the 1990s, right? That's like, that's a not even an MVP. So again, I think there's a lot of ways to go from this, like, yo, I hacked this out at the San Francisco hackathon, you know, to show that it could be done. Do I build a product that has 22 million users? And the, the key ingredient is there is your domain knowledge and a sweet UI UX experience that generally gives me what I am asking for 95% of the time. That right there is the key to building a good business, regardless of the era that we're in. If you focus on that, you're not going to have to worry about being put out of business anytime soon. I feel like that was an awesome mic drop moment and a great place to end the podcast. (laughs) This was incredible. Thank you so much, Dan, for doing the podcast with us. There are so many learnings in here. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.